morning. Okay. So based on Paul's prayer, I'm just going to say like, what? I'm so surprised. You guys don't sing my ser- lines from my sermons during the week? I need to work on that. I need to work on that. Maybe if I sang them. Okay. Might work on that too. Well, good. As Tom said, um, we are in the middle of a five-week Reformation series, uh, just in honor of the 500-year anniversary of this amazing inheritance we have of Martin Luther. A lot have been done previous, but we have to pick a date at which we can say, like, let, we're going to celebrate the start of the Reformation, um, of going back to what we believe is, is biblical, um, apostolic, early church Christianity. And that is, you know, October 31st, 1517, so 500-year anniversary. And there are sort of five planks that summarize and crystallize some of the truths, a lot of the truths of, of the Reformation. And, and Sola Scriptura was last week, um, and I started with that on purpose because everything comes out of the, the fact, the truth that is so precious that, as Tom said, men and women have laid their lives down for, that um, Scripture is our only final authority of, of faith and practice. So it's not the only authority in our lives, but it's the final authority. Um, and this week, we're just going to look at the glory of God, the glory of God alone, so that we should live all of our lives to God's glory, chiefly and really alone, soli deo gloria, it's Latin, for to God alone be the glory. Um, so we're going to talk about the fact that we were made to glorify God, what his glory looks like, as Moses says, show me your glory, and then finally why it matters, why does it make a difference to us. Um, so like I said, it's a Reformation plank, just uh, so why, why does this tell us about what the Reformation was about and why we're inheritors of it. Um, to God alone be the glory. At the time of Luther in the early 16th century, the Roman church was consumed with wealth and with raising more and more capital for building projects. People would buy, they would pay tons and tons and tons of money, thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase church offices, bishop, bishoprics, and uh, to be a cardinal or a bishop or um, a, a priest over an area. They would purchase these things, so they were for sale. And um, the glory of the Roman church was really a gilded, a golden glory that was a material thing, and the church had just been extremely corrupted in that way. And they were selling to raise money for building campaigns, as a lot of you know. Uh, They were going around Europe, around the Holy Roman Empire, selling what they called indulgences to raise money for churches and other things to be built for the popes, the corrupt Borgia popes and others to be able to spend on themselves. And so they would basically say, look, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You can buy your ancestors out of purgatory. And so Martin Luther, people have been protesting in various ways for a long time, but Martin Luther just said, enough is enough. And he nailed his 95 theses to the door. So um, we are not living for the glory of the church. We are not living for the glory of bishops. We are not living for the glory of any man, woman. We're not living for my glory or yours. We are living, we are created for, let me put it that way. We're created for one thing, to, to give glory to the living God. And only, it's only when we align with that reality that our lives make sense and that we're powered to do what God made us to do. Eric Metaxas, who's written a biography this year on, on Martin Luther, speaks of the gold and bejeweled splendor, the glory, as it were, of papal Rome. And, and we stand on the inheritance given to us. Uh, it's a biblical inheritance of to God alone be the glory. It's shot throughout the scriptures. So why does it still matter? So when you say to God alone be the glory, it seems really churchy. 
It brings up stained glass and things that seem irrelevant to our lives, at least to me. And also, that's at best. At worst, to God alone be the glory. God wants our glory. God deserves uh, the glory that we give him. He deserves to, deserves to be worshiped and praised and glorified exclusively. Um, it seems almost like, can I say it, like maybe is God a narcissist? Why does he want all this attention, okay? So I just, it seems maybe like he's a glory hog or needs our praise or worship, needs to be uh, spotlighted by us. But that's not, that's not the case at all. I wanna sort of deconstruct that this morning a little bit. Um, briefly, briefly, in the Bible, what is glory? So in the Old Testament, it's essentially, the main word for it is kavod, and, and it's essentially weight, substance. So like um, a mountain would have a lot of glory, and a pebble would not have a lot of glory. In a sense, it's, it's the reality of something. It's the reality of something. Um, and it's the, the splendor of something. Okay, so the sun has a bunch of glory. Okay, it's hot, it's huge, it powers everything that we are about. Um, in the New Testament, the word is different. It's Greek, and it really means radiance. So just shining. And so there's one bit in a great essay, it's actually a sermon that C.S. Lewis preached in 1941, I believe, called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he says, man, it just, the word glory seems churchy. We're told to glorify God, and we're, we're told that we are going to, in Christ, be glorified. And um, it just seems like, who wants to be a living electric light bulb, you know? So radiance, um, attention, I don't, I don't really, okay? Um, but it's really, we glorify what we think has worth, just to cut it down to, being practical. We give glory to what we think deserves praise and time and attention. We give glory to what we love. So think Astros, right? I mean, man, we were going nuts this week and, and I was right there and that's not necessarily sinful, but it's we give uh, because of our, and I'll get to this in a bit, but because we've been corrupted and our souls have been bent and perverted by the fall, we're made to glorify God and to give him primary worship and praise, but we do we, do, we give glory to anything but God because of the fall and because of our sin and because we have been corrupted um, in, in toto, in, in, completely in, in our souls. Um, and so um, we were made, so let me, let me back up just a little bit. We were made, we were created, how did God make us? He made us worshipers. He made us to give glory. We will worship. So if you think about a cow, a, a cow will chew grass. A coyote will howl. A, uh, a, a flower will reach toward the sun. A pencil will write, and we will give glory. There's, we have no choice in the matter. It's the way we were made. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says, what is the chief end of man? It's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism written for children. What is the chief end of man? What's the reason for our existence? What's our raison d'etre? Why does French keep coming up? Man, I'm so self-conscious now. Okay, I'm gonna start getting French lessons. Um, what is the chief end of man? What's our, what's our reason for existence? Uh, man's chief end, say it with me if you know it, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis and John Piper tweaked that to, I think, a wonderful tweak. Man's chief end is to glorify. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's our raison d'etre? Uh, it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God made us for himself. He made us to love him, to be satisfied in him. And when that's right, everything else is right. Um, and if you need, again, if you need proof of that, if you're like, objection, what? we're made for God's glory, who says? Well, first of all, the scriptures tell us that, and we preached last week on why the scriptures, if they say it, we ought to believe it. 
and it's not a fideism. They, they give great evidence for the fact that the scripture is our final authority. But also, just look at the world around you. Look at this week. Look at, this is the perfect week to, to illustrate the fact that we were made to worship. We were made to praise. I mean, yeah! I mean, I was hugging my, you know, my, my neighbor, across the street neighbor, as I was watching the Astros game on Sunday night that Bubba was at. Bubba's in the kids right now, so he's not here, but Courtney's here and, and Sarah. But I was, I, he was at the game with Alex's son, and, and I was not at the game, and I was at at home, but man, I could have been there because I was hugging my, my across-the-street neighbor who doesn't know me that well. We're getting to know each other better, but now we're best, <laughs> now we're best buddies because at 1.30 in the morning, his wife has been asleep for five hours. We were hugging and crying together in his living room, you know, hands up, no doubt, jumping up and down as we all were. Uh, we were made to worship. We will worship. question is what? And the fact is that because of the fall, we will worship everything but the thing we were made to worship. Um, so we're like, a, um, we're like a planet that insists on other planets and the sun rotating around us. Because in the end, it's, it's really what the fall does is it makes me want to be as God. That was the original sin of our parents. And so every, all of our sin really boils down to it's all about me. We don't have to, you don't have to train your kids to think, hey, it's all about me. You do not have to teach your kids that. They will know that from the get-go because they are born into sin. But that's not the way we were originally made, and we don't work that way. Again, like a planet that is asking all the solar systems to rotate around him, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so we're, we're pushing against the way that things, the fabric of creation. Um, C.S. Lewis says this. So it leaves us empty like a one night, like the morning after a one night stand, giving glory ultimately to anything but the living God. Um, so we're always going to be wanting. We're always going to find ourselves coming up short, whatever we're pursuing, a relationship, a person, a job, whatever we're hooking our identity into, whatever we're giving ourselves to, a team, you know, a celebrity, uh, a book, a movie, whatever it is, okay, whatever it is, usually ends up being a person, a person's good opinion. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory, which I'll quote a couple times. Um, he says, we remain, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. Does that resonate? We remain conscious of... Um, uh, of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But it, is, there any, uh, is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? Nor does the being hungry prove that we have bread. So Lewis is saying, look, we, th the fact is we could all agree that we all have this, this, this wanting in our lives. Whatever we run after, the carrot's always in front of us. We think it's going to satisfy and it leaves us coming up short every single time. So he says, that's a reality we can all accept. That, that is part of what characterizes us. But, but he's saying an objection is, yes, but just because I'm hungry doesn't mean that I have bread. Yes, it doesn't mean that you have bread, but, it, but hunger does, is very good evidence for the fact that you were made for bread, even if you don't have it. And that, so the bread exists and that bread will satisfy that hunger. So our hunger for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, Lewis says, is really good evidence for the fact that we were created for something that's beyond this world. But in Christ, he doesn't say this, but he, he, he gets there. But in Christ has come to this world to give, our, to give himself for us. How beautiful. Um, and Lewis kind of kicks it up a notch. In the beginning of that sermon, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So what Christianity is not is, hey, Calm down over there. You're going too hard after that thing. I didn't, made you for pas I didn't make you for passion. I didn't make you to worship. I didn't make you for strong love. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're, you're, you're not going hard enough. 
I made you to go all the way 100% after none of those things but me. And when you go, when you find, when that bone is set, when we find the object of our worship to be God alone, everything else falls into place. All the lesser loves fall into place. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So John Owen, a Puritan, says this in the glory of Christ, only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. And I would say people, because we're all made for his glory. But it's only we who have said yes to Christ in faith that can actually have that bone set. And I would invite all of you to say that this morning, those of you who haven't yet, and to say it again, those of you who have. And we're gonna jump into that. So our text this morning This is exactly what Moses asks for. Lord, he's on the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the people of Israel down below. They've just rebelled against God. And Moses, he's saying, yes, go with us, Lord, but more than anything, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. So if we want to see what we were made for, we're going to see it this morning. If we want to see what God is, because what God's glory is his his quiddity. Okay, let's use an SAT word, his essence. It's his, let's use a made-up word, his whatness. You want to know what God is like, what he's really made of, who he truly is? That's what Moses asked for, and that's what Moses gets in this text. So let's look at it together. Please show me your glory, what God's glory looks like. Well, what Moses is asking for, if you think about the sun and about the closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous it becomes. It's a source of all life in our universe. But man, if you get too close to it, you will burn up. I mean, if you even look at it without any sunglasses on, it'll burn your eyes out, you know, or whatever. It'll cause you to go blind. It's super, it's full of life and full of glory, but it's dangerous. And God is that times infinity. He's the only infinite, uncreated being, and he's all good, 100% good in power. So, so what Moses is asking for, it's like an ant asking a fire hose, please give me a drink. Wow, that's dangerous. That is really dangerous. It's gonna blow you away, son. And if you want a summary of, what God, of God's response, that's essentially <laughs> what he says. It is going to blow you away, son. You can't see my face and live, okay? Let's take a look at it briefly. What is God's glory? What is his essence? What's he really like? First thing he says out of the gate. What's the first thing? What's his first showing of glory to Moses? Verse 19 of chapter 33. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Okay? So the first thing, God's first go-to is all of his goodness, okay? Not part good, part evil, not benign, not neutral. All of my goodness I will make. That's the first way God chooses to characterize what he really is, he's goodness. Every goodness that we know of is derivative from one thing, God, everything. And the degree to which we don't give God credit for that is the degree to which we're deceived in living for something else. Every good thing, a good thing from sex, a good thing from your work, a good thing from relationships, a good thing from, you just, you name it, okay? It's all derivative from him. He is the source of goodness. And what does he say? I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. In other words, when I'm finished passing before you, uh, my, all my goodness will have passed and there's nothing left because all of God is good. There's nothing in him, even in his judgment which we'll get to in a second, and in his wrath against sin, and in his justice, um, and in his crushing of evil, and in his punishing of sin, it's all his goodness. 
There's nothing in God but goodness. It sums him up. Um, And he goes on in that verse to say, I will be gracious to whom I will, and I will be merciful to whom I will. Um, The the first thing in my sinful, me-oriented self that I think of when I hear that is that it seems a bit like God's a meanie. Okay, you're going to choose who you're gracious to, and you're going to choose who you're merciful to, but that's just because I'm the one that needs to be corrected by the word of God. Paul opens up what this means in Romans chapter 9, his letter to the Roman church in chapter 9. It's one of the hardest and most beautiful texts in all of scripture, and what he shows us, among other things, is that if what it's really showing us is not that God's a meanie, but quite the opposite, that the ground of our hope and salvation, we being sinners and God being good, and all-powerful, much more powerful than the sun, and somebody that you can't even look at his face, and if you get too close, you will die. All of the ground of our hope and salvation is rooted in his advance, is rooted in his choice. And so it's not rooted in us or what we do or any goodness in us. It's rooted in him, and that, friends, is good news. And what I do when I read that in my sin is I make it bad news, but it's the opposite of that. It's very good news that whom he chooses to be gracious to and merciful to he will show grace and mercy to that person and to that people. And he goes on to say that, look, I will, um, I'll show, I show this mercy and grace to the thousand, up to the thousand. It also can be translated to the thousandth generation. That's a long, long, that's a lot of years. And then he says, but look, I won't let the guilty go free even to the third and fourth generation. So that's sort of an unfolding of what does it mean that God chooses to be gracious and merciful? It means that, as John Calvin said, Judgment is God's alien work. He judges, but what he loves to do is to show mercy. And what really makes him tick is that he's full of compassion and giving favor to undeserving sinners. That is actually the essence. It's the bullseye. If God is a target, this is the bullseye. He loves to show mercy and grace and favor and goodness to those that don't deserve it. Judgment is his alien work, but it's part of what he does because he can't let evil and sin go forever because if he were, if he did that, he wouldn't be good. He can't let that go on forever. So that's part of his goodness, but it's his alien work. Um, and in this context, again, to sort of flesh out what does this mean, what has just happened in this, in this text in Exodus, in chapter 32? Anyone know? What has just happened is that Israel, his own people, that he is just what? He's just brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He's part of the Red Sea. He's rained down plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh. He's showed them that he favors them and loves them through no good of their own and rescued them. And what do they do? They build a golden calf and start to worship it while Moses is up on the mountain. That's just happened. And yet he remains, he keeps Israel as his people because that's the kind of God he is. Um, But then he says this in verses 20 and 21, no man can see my face and live. So here's the fact, the fact that the the ground of any favor we're gonna receive and any hope and any salvation is God. And yet we can't look on him and live. He's our Best hope in our worst fear. What did Jesus say? Don't fear man who can just kill you. Fear God who can kill you and cast you into hell. God is fearsome and terrible in all of his goodness. And we presume that we can walk up to him just as we are. We presume. But he says this in verse 22, this wonderful bit of news. One of the best verses in the Bible. He says, but I will make a place for you right by me so that you can see me. It is amazing. It's just like, he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna place you. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, come on up. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm gonna take you and place you, and I'm gonna cover you with my own hand 
so that you can see me and know me and love me and I can love you and be in relationship with you. This is a, like a fatherly, tender picture. It's what, it's what parents do with their children to pick you up. I pick Susanna and my other kids up by the shoulders sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they're like, ow, daddy. You know, pick them up. That's what parents, that's what fathers do, right? You pick them up and you put them where you want them. And that's what God is saying he's going to do with Moses. Now, let me downshift into this. Uh, I just want to sit for a few minutes on this. The glory of God is seen, what? You know where I'm going. In the face and in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, all of this, we see God's glory here with Moses, but we who are on this side of Christ see him fully in the face, not just, not just from the back, okay? Um, Moses said, show me your glory, and in Christ, God says, I have fully, I have fully, my full image. Um, verse, again, I'm just gonna kind of go through some of the verses I went through. Verse 19 in chapter 33, Exodus 33, 19. Again, I will be gracious to whom I will and merciful to whom I will. If it seems at all stingy or arbitrary, you look at how that's manifest in Christ. How does God show us his grace and mercy? What's the measure of that? He sent his own dear and beloved, precious son to be crushed in our place so that we wouldn't have to be, so that we could be made whole. This is the measure of God's grace to us. Um, the word, when he says, I will have mercy in verse 19 on whom I will, that word is also translated compassion. And in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, of course, but it's translated compassion in a lot of translations. And um, God is, he, he's a God full of compassion. You prick God and what comes out of him? What's his glory? What's his whatness? It's, it's compassion. He's saying, I'm a, I am full of it. I'm full of compassion. That's who I am. The, the word that's most often used of Jesus uh, to describe how his feelings when he's on the earth in the four gospels is guess what? Compassion. He felt compassion. When he saw the crowds and they were like sheep with no shepherd, he felt compassion. You know what that word means? It means your guts. Literally, it means your guts are wrenched. You feel it in your gut. He felt so much pity and compassion for people that are just straying all around and have no idea what's going on, which way is up. And at the same time, the, the word is used a ton. I'm just giving you a few examples. The leper, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's coming down the mountain as God and man, in God in the flesh, unapproachable, far from it. In Matthew chapter eight, first verse, a leper approaches him, and you can't, according to Jewish law, you cannot touch a leper. They are unclean. What does Jesus do? The leper comes up, bows before him, and says, if you will, you can make me clean. What does Jesus do? I will. Get out of here. You're clean. No. I will. He felt compassion for him, it says. I will, and he touches him. Didn't have to do that. You are valuable. You are my creation. I love you, and I came to lay my life down for you. And at the same, in the same way, he passes the funeral beer of a widow who has lost her husband. Okay, so that's a widow, right? That's redundant. She's lost her husband. She's walking out of the town of Nain up near Galilee, and she's just lost her son, her only child. That's her social security. That's her family. It's gone now. She will have no way to provide for herself. She's bereft. And Jesus comes to this, and it says he felt compassion. He was moved in his guts, and he stops the funeral procession, and he says, stop, please stop crying. And he touches the young man and raises him up and gives the man back to his mother. He's a God of compassion, and Jesus shows us that more clearly than anything in the Old Testament, all of which points to Jesus, doesn't it? Um, John Owen, again, the Puritan, said, he was required to pity us until he had none to pity him when he most needed it. 
Why was he able to show us so much compassion? Because God left him, abandoned him, showed him no pity, nor did we at the cross. He took what we deserved, okay, but gave, gave, gave compassion. Um, Again, in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Um, How does God do this? Um, How did Moses see God's glory? Um, Exactly what is he like? Um, did, he, did he look at God? Did he look at a form? What are we given in Exodus 33 and 34? Do we see the outline of God? Does he, is it described? Not at all. He says, um, I will call out my name to you, my covenant name to you. And then we're given with words his character traits. So how do we see God? The Puritan said we see God with the ear. We see God through his word. God doesn't say, look how awesome I am. It's gonna blind you. He doesn't point to a mountain. He doesn't point to the sun. He doesn't say, look at the grandeur of the skies. If I were God and somebody asked, a little puny man asked me, I want to see your glory, what makes you, you, I would show him all my power. But he doesn't do that. He tells Moses, I'm a God of compassion and mercy and goodness who loves to forgive. And I judge too, but it's my alien work. Um, And what do we get in the New Testament? But the word made flesh. How do we see God? We see God through his word, and his word is Jesus Christ. Um, his word is Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 25 and 26, some of the, my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Um, this, Paul says this. He says, this was to show, he, he put Christ on the cross, God did, as, to bear the wrath, God's wrath against our sin, okay? And he did this to show God's righteousness. Because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So God had given mercy and grace all throughout the Old Testament, but that, didn't, that came at a cost. God can't just ignore that stuff. It has to be paid for. And so what Paul is telling us is that on the cross, Jesus showed off God's glory, his goodness, his righteousness, by being that punishment for sin. He showed God's justice, and he also showed that God justifies sinners like us. That's what the cross shows us. And that is the hot, white core, the bullseye of who God is. Wow. Um, In verse 7 of chapter 34, Exodus 34, 7, he says, I'm a God who's, who forgives sin. That word forgives is the common word for forgive, but it, it literally means to lift up or carry. Um, God in Christ lifted up our sin and carried it away by being lifted up on the cross. That, Jesus is the perfect picture of how God forgives sin, okay? And when, um, so, so he, So either Christ will pay for our sin if we have trusted in him or we will pay for it if we've trusted in ourselves and keep continuing to go our own way, okay? Either way, God is just and the balance has to be righted and evil must be made right and sin must be paid for. Um, There's a little girl that I read about um, this week in a book that I'm reading who her father was an alcoholic and she, um, happened years ago, she was nine years old and it was Christmas Eve and she wanted a pair of, I think, red shoes, a pair of shoes for Christmas. And her daddy went and, and gave her $40. This was, this was probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when $40 could have bought you a pair of, <laughs> a little girl pair of shoes. Um, $40, and he said, go get whatever you want, sweetie. And she came back with the shoes, and she hopped in the car. It was about 3 p.m., and she said, Daddy, you're the best daddy in the world, and gave him a big hug and kiss. And he, to celebrate sort of, I guess, his graciousness, um, he went to the nearby pub that was his watering hole. And it was, again, December 24th and not here in Houston. It was cold. And he left the car running and he left the doors locked and the windows up. And at midnight, nine hours later, he came out 
dead drunk. The car had long since lo- run out of gas, uh, windows up, doors locked, couldn't get out. She, she got frostbite, um, lost tips of her ears and her fingers, and it was death from that, from that moment on. Um, tragic. And God can't let that kind of stuff go. But when we, who are full of sin and evil and rebellion and waywardness, wanting to get glory for ourselves and wanting things to revolve around us, do things, whether that egregious or not, think things, say things throughout our lives, we give ourselves a pass. We know deep down, though, that that, kind of, that evil, an evil period has to be paid for. If God is good, and God is all good, okay? Um, Jesus Christ hung on that cross to be that payment for sin. This shows us what God is really like. This shows us God's glory. Um, Christ being lifted up, okay, you want to you know what is the exaltation of the living God? What is the glory of God? It's Jesus being lifted up on the cross. That is the surprise that the Old Testament foretells but that nobody saw coming and that, and that Jesus embodies. The surprise of the New Testament is that Jesus going, coming all the way down into our mess and sin and actually becoming our sin and going to hell for us who would trust in him. God going that low, that is the glory of God. That is the exaltation of God, is God being lifted on a Roman piece of wood to be tortured, murdered, and to become our sin for it. That is what the Bible tells us is the most astonishing and glorious thing of all. And God says, that's me. And then he rose three days later, showing that his payment, the payment of Jesus, had been accepted by the Father as adequate for your sins and mine. All those who will trust in him. Beat death, beat sin, beat hell, beat Satan. And he, Christ, is the rock that we hide in. He's the rock that the Old Testament pointed to. He's the only reason Moses or any of us are able to see God at all. And in Christ, we see, what, his face. We see the glory of God in the face, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, in the face of Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross for us and resurrected. Um, and that word in, the, in Exodus, for I will put you in the rock and I will cover you with my hand. It's not the word for hand. In the, the common word for hand in the Hebrew is, uh, it means, oftentimes it means hand of power. God's righteous right hand. I will deliver you with my righteous right hand. That's the word yod. Not here, okay? Here, it's the word kaf. I will cover you with my open palm. What more, what better picture of us being safe because God covers us with his open palm than God splayed on a Roman tree, crucified for us? This is God's love. This is the love of God for us. It's his glory. It's what he's like. And it's everything, it is everything to us. So there's no divide between the Old Testament God and Jesus, the New Testament God. There's no divide at all. This is his glory. This is who he is. Luther, uh, Martin Luther, to kind of come back just briefly to Luther, he had an epiphany before 1517, okay? In the five years leading up to that, that he called, it's referred to as the cloaca epiphany or experience. The cloaca means um, sewer or tower in Latin, but it's, a, it's a, probably a play on words because it means sewer, and it, it literally, he said, I got the gospel when I was reading the scriptures, it came to me, I became aware that it is God demonstrating his righteousness through Jesus 
through no good works of our own, access by faith alone. I got that gospel in the sewer, in the cloaca, on the, here's the German, Scheißhaus. I'm gonna leave you, I'm not gonna translate that. On the Scheißhaus, okay? Um, now, on the toilet. Now, what is he talking about? There, his study was above that. So it literally says, on top of the Scheißhaus, okay, is where I got it. What is he, what is he saying? Well, it's double entendre. He probably realized it in his study, but he was over on top of where the bathroom was used, where bad, dirty, nasty things happen, okay? Um, and how does, how does Eric Metaxas unfold this, this epiphany that Luther had? He says, the infinite, he got this. Luther got this. The infinite and omniscient and omnipotent creator God of heaven did not descend to earth on a golden cloud, as the Roman church might have had us think, or as we would think if we made up the gospel. He came to us through screaming pain, through the bloody agony of a maiden's birth canal, in a cattle stall, filthy with and stinking of dung. This is what God chose. This is how he chose to come to us, friends. God born through a virgin's birth canal into the shice house of our broken existence, into this present darkness. Think, if you think it's dark now, the gospel is spread almost all the way around the world. Think about how dark it was when even God's own people rejected him. There was no light at all. And when he died, it was completely extinguished. But up from the grave, he arose. And the torch continues today, okay? He was rejected. He was hung on a Roman torture rack. Behold, this is the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. This is the face of the living God. Christ died for us, okay? He entered our mess to clean us. He took our pain upon himself and into himself to heal us. For that which is not assumed, this is an old patristic phrase, that which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not taken up is not healed. Christ took up all of our pain and sorrow, all of our humanity. He became one of us, truly. Um, and here's the thing, and I close with just some application, and then we're done, okay? He calls us to do the same because we are little Christs. I'm not trying to be blasphemous, I'm trying to be biblical. We have Christ in us. We are the house of God. We, the people of God. He calls us to enter darkness, not to run away. You know, like when 9-11 happened and they kept saying the, the line that was so great. Maybe you can sing this line. Try to do better on memorable lines, right? But um, the firemen were the ones that would run toward the trouble and not away from it. As Christians, we are to be known. And throughout history, Christians have been known for those who ran toward the mess. So in the plagues and in the 14th and 15th century in Europe, uh, the bubonic plagues, whole cities would just flee. Whole towns would just leave town because those that were infected would infect others. Christians were known for going in. And in the same way, not just with plagues and disasters like Harvey and other things, but in the day-to-day with friends and family and even ourselves, we who uh, often in our flesh, we want to run the other way. I don't want, that, I don't want, to, I don't want to get dirty, but our God came all the way down and, and covered himself with our sin to free us and to clean us. This is his business. It's what he does. It's his glory. So with that glory in us, we go toward the sin, toward the mess, toward the brokenness. That's what the body of Christ does, that we could be known as a body like that here and in this neighborhood and in this galleria that he's planted us in, that we could be a people not only who do that, but who open up and say, that's the gospel. I have darkness here. You know, I've got some things. We have our our, um, parish at my place just across the road. You're all, all welcome if you're not in a parish, but if you're close by. Um, across the street, it's in my house on Sunday nights. We have it tonight. I have some things that I need to pray into tonight with my, with the body that God's given me. 
and, and to let others into the things that I'm wrestling with and I'm struggling with, ways I've fallen short. That's the good stuff. No mess, no ministry. Let's not be a people who have a veneer and pretend like we have it all together. That's the anti-gospel. We are sinners saved by a sinless Savior who became sin for us. That's why we're here. It's what we're about. That's why we do partnerships. It's why we have parish. It's why we want to plant churches. That's it. Soli Deo Gloria. And when we align with that, everything else in our lives, not perfectly because guess what? We're in this broken world, in this shice house, okay? And nothing, we're in the already not yet. We're in the middle. We're in the shadow lands. It's never going to be, into, but glory's coming. And the more we live into that, guess what? The more glory is going to come. The more this area in our lives will change as we enter the darkness because Christ has gone before us and he's with us. He's with us. A few quotes and then we're out. God's glory in dark and dirty places. I've already sort of touched on that. Um, let me just finish with God's glory in the ordinary, okay? Martin Luther, let every man stay. So again, two ways we can apply this. Just If you wanna sing these lines, all right? I'm just gonna keep saying that. It's gonna get really annoying. God's glory, hey, God's glory in the dark and dirty places. That's one way that his church manifests his glory. And God's glory, here's, here's the finish, in the ordinary. A couple quotes, Martin Luther, let every man stay in his own parish. Actually, he said that, I didn't put that in there. <laughs> it's an ancient word. It means in the area that you live in, right? You work in, perhaps, but also that you live in and that you share life with people in. Let every man stay in his own parish. Isn't there a desire? Flannery O'Connor, when she, she's a, a writer in the first part of the 20th century and very gifted, and all of her peers were going over to Paris because that's where, that's where the real electricity and the intellect and the writing happens. But she was wise enough to understand, she who died at age 39 of lupus, she was wise enough to understand, she moved back to her hometown of Georgia, sat on the front porch and said, everything in life that I need, all the adventures right in front of my face. It's all here. If you run somewhere else, you're not necessarily gonna find it. All that we need, all the adventure we need is right here in front of us, okay? All the people, all the, all the, all the stuff of life, let every man stay in his own parish. There he will find, here he says it better than I did, there he will find more than in all the shrines. He was preaching against people leaving on pilgrimage to go to exotic places. Stay here with the people God's given you, church. That's what he says. In your own parish, you will find baptism, the sacraments, preaching, and your neighbor. These regular means of grace that we're given. The person right in front of you, that's your mission. Your wife, your neighbor, your coworker, that's your mission. Michael Horton says much the same. We can miss God in the daily stuff, looking for the extraordinary moment outside of his word in conversation with him in daily prayer, family worship, and especially the public gathering of the saints in each Lord's Day, and I would add parish, the gathering throughout the week as well and inviting our neighbors into that. If we were more serious about these ordinary means of grace, he says, I'm convinced the church would have a much stronger witness in the world today. Soli Deo Gloria means finding the sacred ordinary. Um, and let me finish with a quote from Paul of Tarsus in his letter to the church in Rome. This is a Eugene Peterson paraphrase, Romans 12. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Soli Deo Gloria. God's, God's glory is here. It's in the mess. It's in the dirt. It's in the sin in getting involved in each other's lives and letting others get into ours and opening up because that's where Christ is and it's in the ordinary, okay? That's what he's made us for, people of God. He's not saved just me. He saved me to be 
part of a people that he's redeeming for himself. And I can't find his glory fully unless I walk into that and embrace that. Um, and Psalm 86, 9, um, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. How does that happen? In these little ways, as we're faithful and as we receive Christ in the glory, in the mess, and in the ordinary. Let me, let me read this as a benediction. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? Finish it for me. To the glory of God. Everything, everything, guys, especially the dark, especially the, dark, the dirty, especially the sinful, it's where Christ is, especially the ordinary. Um, let, me, let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Um, like Tom said at the beginning, we, we take it for granted. Forgive us. Give us a wonder that we can know you, not by seeing. Jesus, not many people saw you, but you are the word in your, the core of who you are, your heart, your compassion is broadcast for us in clear colors in the scriptures. By faith, through the power of your spirit, bring us to you, help us to see your glory, make us into a glorious people as we share life together, as we invite others in, as we, are, we don't run away from the mess, we run to it, because that's what you've done for us. It's why we're alive in you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone today who hasn't just surrendered and bowed the knee and said, Lord, I'm a mess. You came for messes like me. Come and, and have me. Uh, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose for me. I pray that they would do that this morning. Um, we love you, Jesus. Amen.